Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 51, Project Gemini, part 3. Let's start reading you loud and clear. Clear, clear, clear. The clock has started. The clock has started. The clock has started. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Last week, we talked about the Mercury 13, the unofficial program that ran women pilots through the same physical tests and trials that NASA astronauts had to pass, though none of the women who successfully passed the tests were welcomed into the NASA astronaut program, ostensibly because none of them were graduates of any of the military or civilian test pilot courses programs that were not open to women at the time, and none had engineering degrees, another program largely inaccessible to women. NASA didn't begin considering women for their astronaut pool until the late 1970s, after the Apollo program, and it wasn't until 1983 that Sally Ride became the first American woman in space. By the mid-1960s, NASA was launching its new spaceship, the Gemini Capsule, on unmanned test flights in preparation to launch tandem sets of astronauts and begin practicing skills that will need to be perfected before the moonshot. Spacewalks, orbiting capsule maneuvers, and rendezvous and docking procedures while in orbit. But before the United States could launch a manned two-person capsule, the Soviets crammed three cosmonauts into one of theirs and safely, if uncomfortably, brought them back to Earth. The Soviets also got a second multi-crew capsule into orbit before the Americans launched their first Gemini mission. And this second flight saw the first human spacewalk but a difficult re-entry left the two cosmonauts stranded in Siberia, surrounded by snow and aggressive bears and wolves. Moscow had not picked up the capsule's distress signal, but it had been picked up by listening stations as far away as Bonn, West Germany. More helpful for the cosmonauts, a cargo plane flying close to the landing site also picked the signal up. A search party was dispatched, and just a few hours later, Belayev and Leonov heard an approaching helicopter. The cosmonauts struggled through the deep snow into a small clearing, waving their arms. The pilot spotted them, but their run of poor luck continued. There was no way to land the helicopter among all the trees. The eager civilians tried their best. They lowered a flimsy rope ladder to the stranded men, but the heavy spacesuits made it impossible to climb up. The cosmonauts' whereabouts were being passed from pilot to nearby pilot, and so many aircraft began circling over the location. So many, in fact, that the men on the ground were concerned there would be a mid-air collision. 
Looking for any way to help, the planes began tossing items down to Belayev and Leonov. The first item, a bottle of cognac, broke when it landed. Of far more use were the two pairs of wolfskin boots, thick pants, and jackets. The clothes got caught in branches, but the cosmonauts did retrieve and happily put on the warm boots. The late afternoon light was fading fast, and Belayev and Leonov realized they would not be rescued until the next morning at the earliest. As darkness fell, so did the temperature, and the cold began to concern Leonov. In his book, Two Sides of the Moon, the cosmonaut wrote, The sweat that had filled my spacesuit while I was trying to re-enter the capsule after my spacewalk was sloshing around in my boots up to my knees. It was starting to chill me. I knew we would both risk frostbite if we did not get rid of the moisture in our suits. We had to strip naked and wring the moisture out of our underwear. We went on to separate the rigid part of the suit from its softer lining. Nine layers of aluminum foil and a synthetic material called deuterone and then put the softer part of the suit back on over our underwear and pull our boots and gloves back on. Now we could move more easily. They tried to get the parachute out of the tree to provide even more warmth with no luck and had to fight the minus 22 degree Fahrenheit temperature with just the remnants of their spacesuits. Minus 22 Fahrenheit is minus 30 Celsius for those keeping score at home. The men survived the night and a ski-mounted rescue team, which included two doctors and someone with a video camera, who began filming as soon as he saw Belayev and Leonov, reached them. It took the team another 24 hours to cut down enough trees to clear a landing zone but their second night was much more comfortable than their first. The rescuers built a small log cabin, built a roaring fire, and had brought with them cheese, sausage, and bread. After three days with little food, it seemed like a feast. When they finally made it back to mission control, there were celebrations all around, and Leonov delivered an extremely to-the-point report on his mission. He briefed his bosses, quote, Provided with a spacesuit, man can survive and work in open space. Thank you for your attention. End quote. Little did anyone know that Leonov's spacewalk was to be the Soviets' last manned space first for more than 20 years. Four days after Voshkod 2's eventful return to Earth, on March 23, 1965, the first two Project Gemini astronauts blasted off. Alan Shepard was supposed to command the Gemini 3 mission, but after he was grounded with an inner ear disorder, Gus Grissom was appointed commander, and he was accompanied by the first Next 9 astronaut to go into space, John Young. 
hoping to avoid a repeat of the end of his Mercury mission when his capsule Liberty Bell 7 sank after splashdown, Grissom named the Gemini 3 capsule Molly Brown, a tongue-in-cheek reference to the Broadway musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown. NASA management wasn't happy with the name and asked him to change it. When Grissom replied, well, how about Titanic? His bosses relented, and the capsule remained Molly Brown, but it was the last Gemini flight NASA allowed the astronauts to name. The goal of this first crewed Gemini mission was to test the maneuverability of the new spacecraft. In space, Grissom and Young used thrusters to change the shape of their orbit, shift their orbital plane, and drop to a lower altitude. Two small failures occurred during the orbital stage of the mission. First, a lever that broke when it was pulled caused an experiment testing the effect of zero gravity on sea urchin eggs to fail. And second, the improper lens setting on an exterior-facing camera messed up several 16mm photos taken during the flight. The only major incident that occurred while in orbit involved a contraband corned beef sandwich that John Young smuggled aboard in his pocket. Young took out the sandwich, and each astronaut took a few bites before the rest was restowed. The crumbs that continued to float around the space capsule could have seriously damaged Molly Brown's electronics. Both men were reprimanded after their return, and the other astronauts were warned not to pull the same type of stunt. When Mercury 7 astronaut Deke Slayton published his autobiography 30 years later, he claimed that before the Gemini 3 mission, Young had approached Slayton in his role as Director of Flight Crew Operations, and Slayton gave Young permission to bring the sandwich, so Grissom and Young may have taken the fall for a fellow astronaut. I'm just happy that this incident gives me the excuse to say, Corn beef sandwich in space! After three orbits, the Molly Brown began the re-entry phase of the mission and initially, all went as planned. But it soon became clear that the capsule was off course and was going to come down about 45 miles or 70 kilometers off target. Wind tunnel tests had indicated that the maneuverability features of the capsule would allow crews to make adjustments during re-entry, but Gemini's actual lift turned out to be much less than expected and not only was Grissom unable to adjust course in any significant manner, the adjustments that were made threw the capsule farther off course and they ultimately came down about 70 miles or 115 kilometers off course. To make things worse, when the parachutes deployed, the capsule shifted in such a manner that Grissom cracked his helmet's faceplate on the control panel in front of him. This caused NASA to stop using acrylic for the faceplates and move on to the much stronger polycarbonate plastic. Gemini 3 achieved two firsts. The first time two American astronauts were sent into space together, 
and the first time a space capsule maneuvered in orbit, a crucial test for the moonshot. It was during this mission that Gus Grissom became the first person to fly in space for a second time. This was also the first time U.S. astronauts had gone to space since the assassination of space program advocate John F. Kennedy. After JFK's assassination on November 22, 1963, Vice President and possibly the space program's most ardent supporter, Lyndon B. Johnson, immediately stepped into the role of president, comforting a nation and pledging to continue to support many of Kennedy's policies to include putting a man on the moon. Six days after the assassination, Johnson sought to memorialize Kennedy's contributions by announcing that the Cape Canaveral rocket launch site in Florida would be renamed Cape Kennedy during a televised address. The next day, Johnson signed an executive order stating that the NASA Launch Operations Center, which included Cape Canaveral, would be renamed the John F. Kennedy Space Center. The second crewed spaceflight of Project Gemini lifted off two and a half months later on June 3, 1965, and was crewed by next nine astronauts James McDivitt and Ed White. The press coverage for this launch approached the same frenzied level of the first few Mercury missions thanks to the Early Bird, the first commercial communications satellite which allowed an international audience from 12 European countries to watch the launch live on TV. 1,100 print and broadcast journalists requested accreditation between the launch site in Florida and Mission Control in Texas. McDivitt and White wanted to name their capsule American Eagle, but after NASA got mad at Grissom's Molly Brown, the two were told their spaceship would simply be called Gemini 4. They did put the American flag on their spacesuits, the first spacesuits to feature a national flag. Previously, NASA astronauts only had the NASA emblem and a name tape on their suits. The historic four-day mission was the United States' first multi-day spaceflight, and was the first time a spacecraft tried to dock with another object already in orbit. This rendezvous was attempted during the first orbit, but failed for a variety of reasons. A few of the big ones were a lack of radar in the capsule, so McDivitt and White had to eyeball how far away they were from the target, and they always disagreed on their estimates. There were also some aspects of the orbital mechanics of rendezvous that NASA engineers realized they still needed to work out. After spending about half the capsule's thruster fuel, McDivitt decided to give up on that aspect of the mission and move on to the next and more important mission, the first American spacewalk. I have used the term spacewalk throughout this episode and during the last, and I will continue to use it going forward, but the official term used by NASA to this day is extravehicular activity, or EVA. In other words, anything an astronaut does outside the protection of a spacecraft. While flying over Western Australia, the American astronauts began to depressurize their capsule, and Ed White exited the vehicle over Hawaii. 
attached to Gemini 4 by a tether, White floated out of the capsule using a handheld maneuvering unit the astronauts called a zip gun, which used pressurized oxygen to help them move around in the low-gravity environment. White moved 15 feet, about 4.5 meters, away from the spacecraft. Apparently, White found the zip gun very helpful and easy to use, the exact opposite opinion of his colleague McDivitt, who referred to it as utterly useless. But White may have relied on it a bit too much because he expended the gun's supply of oxygen after only three minutes, well before his 20-minute spacewalk was over. After this, he had to pull on the tether and twist his body to move around the spacecraft. Ed White spent more than twice the amount of time outside Gemini 4 that he was supposed to. He later said that he was having the time of his life. While outside the capsule, White took pictures of his surroundings with a handheld camera and McDivitt took pictures of White, the first time a spacewalk had been photographed. Many of these pictures remain space classics to this day, and I have put a few of them up on the website www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. After failing to return to the spacecraft in the allotted time, McDivitt, the mission commander, and their bosses back at mission control had to plead with, cajole, and finally order White back inside. The transcript of his last few minutes on that spacewalk read like this. They want you to get back in, now. (laughs) I'm not coming in. This is fun. Come on. Hate to come back to you, but I'm coming. Okay, come in then. Aren't you going to hold my hand? Ed, come on in here. Come on. Let's get back in here before it gets dark. I'm coming back in, and it's the saddest moment of my life. The saddest moment of his life was leaving the vastness of space where he was but a mere speck, one of the merest specks in that vacuum. Several other smaller tests and experiments were conducted during the pair's four days in space, but the spacewalk was the highlight watched live the world over, and after the mission, McDivitt's photographs of White were published worldwide. These photographs showed White wearing a Swiss-made Omega Speedmaster chronograph watch on his spacesuit sleeve, one of two makes of watches that had been approved by NASA for space use following extensive tests. Omega was unaware of these tests or that their watch would be used in space, but were ecstatic with the great publicity. Since that time, Omega has had a close association with space travel and continues to produce space-associated speedmasters to this day, including some that have been made using meteorites. I only bring this up because Omega is far and away my favorite watchmaker, but minor independent podcaster isn't a career that allows one to purchase a moonwatch. But just in case, just in case, a member of the Omega marketing team happens to be listening and is 
interested in inviting an everyman to join the athletes and movie stars already in their ad campaigns, please feel free to reach out. I'm sure we can come to some sort of an agreement. After four days, Gemini 4 returned to Earth, and while their landing was harder than NASA doctors would have liked, it was softer than Gemini 3's had been, and both astronauts were no worse for wear. In commemoration of their successful mission, specifically the first American spacewalk, McDivitt and White, along with Gemini project manager Charles Matthews, were invited to the White House and presented the National Aeronautics and Space Agency Exceptional Service Award during a Rose Garden ceremony. After participating in a motorcade to the U.S. Capitol where a crowd of 50,000 enthusiastic admirers cheered them on, the astronauts and project manager had the rare honor of returning to the White House with their families to spend the night. First Lady Lady Bird Johnson recalled fondly, By 6 p.m., seven little astronaut children were splashing in the pool. The meals were ordered for the solarium, and a Walt Disney movie laid on while the grown-ups prepared for the evening. While the children watched the movie, the astronauts and their wives accompanied the President and First Lady to the State Department Auditorium to view the NASA color film of their spaceflight and White's historic spacewalk. White took the opportunity to describe his walk for the President, saying, I took some big steps. I stepped on Hawaii and onto California, and then I stepped right on Texas, Mr. President. That last part was particularly humorous to the new president, who was a Texan. After the film, President Johnson delivered the biggest surprise of the day when he asked his guests to accompany Vice President Hubert Humphrey to the Paris Air Show the next morning. This invitation left little time for preparation. When they returned to the White House, Mrs. Johnson lent several dresses to Patricia McDivitt, Patricia White, and Marietta Matthews for the unexpected trip to France. The group finally had dinner at 11.25 p.m. and then hastily headed to bed to prepare for the 4 a.m. departure to Paris. Their presence at the Paris Air Show was meant to demonstrate the growing power of the United States space program on the international stage. The U.S. also showcased this growing power by launching another Gemini capsule as soon as possible. On August 21, 1965, two and a half months after Gemini 4, Gemini 5 lifted off with Gordo Cooper taking his second flight and rookie Pete Conrad going up for the first time. The motto for this mission was eight days or bust, as these two would aim to break the Soviet's record for longest space mission. But we will have to wait until next week to talk about that flight. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are photos to go along with every episode at the website www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. If you have any thoughts or comments about the show, my email address is also at the website 
or you can reach out on Facebook or Twitter. Links to those sites are in the show notes. If you want to help others discover the podcast, you can leave a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you stream from. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.